0: Hi and welcome to another one of the Branch Online Sermons. Don't forget that there's a barbecue today, the 30th of August, at the Tail Race Park at Riverside. It starts at 12 and runs through to 2.30. It's BYO food and you can bring games and balls and whatever else uh, you'd like to bring uh, to that. So please join us for that. Over the last two weeks, we've been trying to think through what the church does. We've seen that the mission of the church is to love God with all our heart, mind and soul and to love our neighbour as ourselves and also to make disciples of all nations, baptising them and teaching them to obey Jesus. But how do we do that? Uh, we saw that one of, the way, one of the key ways last week is by the church gathering. But today we're trying to think through how the church does it, how we do that when we're not gathered together. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but really the majority of our lives is not lived in our Sunday gatherings or in growth groups or in youth group or in meetings with other Christians. The amount of time would vary for different people, but I suspect that for many of us, it probably boils down to an average of no more than four hours a week in a church or church-related gathering. That's remarkable when you consider that there are 112 waking hours in the week. So church stuff takes up less than 3.5% of all our time. That's really not very much. So although, as we saw last week, gathering as believers in church and house to house is absolutely central to what we do, it's central to our our identity as believers, we also need to think through carefully about what we do when we're scattered throughout the week in all the places that God has put us. That is, how do you and I fulfill the Great Commission and the Great Commandments when we're scattered in homes and streets and suburbs, families, jobs, community groups, and wherever else? Well, uh, in, an, well in answering that question, uh, we'll be spending a fair bit of time working through parts of 1 Peter. And if you haven't done so yet, you might like to stop the video and read through 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. But before we look at what we do when we're scattered, it might just be helpful to see how that idea of being scattered functions in the Bible. Peter begins his letter, his first letter, by speaking about that exact reality of being scattered. He says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter was writing to Christians scattered throughout the world. He uses the term diaspora, and that's a term that was used to describe the Jews who in the Old Testament had been dispersed through the world by their defeat at the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. It might seem strange to you and me, but one of the things that God's Old Testament judgment on the people of Israel achieved, one of the things that achieved was that the message of God went out to the nations. Because the people of Israel were in those nations, the message of God was heard by those nations. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter two that on the day of Pentecost, when the people had gathered to hear the disciples and to hear Peter preaching, on that day there were God-fearing Jews and converts to Judaism from every nation under heaven. That's because through God's judgment, those, his people had been scattered into all those nations, taking that message with them. So there were positive effects, if you like, to that scattering, even though it was a result, in that instance, of God's judgment. And the positive effects of being scattered are seen later in Acts as well. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went in other words quite remarkably the scattering of God's people throughout the world actually led to the gathering of God's people as those people were scattered under persecution they took the gospel message with them out into the world where God uh, had sent them. And so the scattering of God's people through the world leads to the gathering of God's people. That's a core principle, really, in the whole of the Bible. The scattering of the church builds the church. By being scattered throughout the world, God's people, you and I, take the gospel to schools, to building sites, to sports clubs, to bands, uh, to office buildings, to shopping centres, to skate parks, to jails, to footy clubs, to craft groups, to community gardens, uh, to other towns and other states and other countries. You name it, the gospel goes there not because a church decides to run an activity there, but because of the individual Christians who plug themselves into those areas of society. In fact, the great diversity of people in churches, which makes us, makes it hard for the church to gather, it makes it hard for us to gather because we're all so different, it causes conflicts and challenges, that great diversity that can make it hard to gather is actually the same diversity that makes the church an incredibly strategic enterprise. Because God has gathered all kinds of different people into this one place, to then be, to be built up by the gospel, to take that gospel message into vastly different places uh, and into vastly different settings. You can take the gospel with you to places that I could never take the gospel. And I can take the gospel to places where you can never take the gospel. And that is all part of the wonderful plan and purpose of God. Uh, I have a sister who is a scientist She can take the gospel to scientist people. Most of us are not scientists. Uh, We we don't mix in that world, but she is. She can take the gospel there. Uh, Some of us have young kids, uh, and so we are brushing shoulders with other parents and other children. We can take the gospel into those situations. You can do that in ways that I could never do because I don't have children. I'm not in a school setting. So the different gifts and responsibilities and stages of life that God has put us in gives us great opportunities to take the gospel into vastly different places, not all together, uh, but in the places where God has put us. So the church not only gathers together, that's core to the identity of the church. Uh, We not only gather to be equipped by the gospel to love God and to love the church, And our neighbour, and to make disciples, the church of God also scatters throughout the world to the places where God, in his wisdom, has put us. But how does that happen? How is God building his church through us being scattered? Well, the rest of 1 Peter goes on to give us the broad outlines of that. If you like, Peter's entire letter is really about equipping God's people to live for God's glory as exiles scattered throughout the world. How does that happen? Well, in the first place, Peter says it happens by the church living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is that is church language, uh, but but Peter says we are called to serve God where we are. We're called to serve holy lives. We're called to serve God, and as we do that, we are to declare the praises of God. Wherever we are, the praise of God ought to be flowing uh, out of our mouths. Evangelism is fundamentally and first and foremost, an act of praise. We speak about God because we're excited about God. We love God. And if we're not speaking about God, then that means that our love for God has grown cold. We need to pray that God would fire up our love for him. But we not only speak the gospel and praise God, we also live out the implications of the gospel. And Peter goes on to that in verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is, as strangers in the world, we're to live out the gospel of righteousness through Jesus Christ. We are to live our lives among the pagans, scattered throughout the world, scattered among people who don't know God, who don't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And living in that way bears witness to the greatness and the glory of God. How do we do that? Well, Peter gives us some concrete examples of that. First, we're to submit to the authorities. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. You might not think of submission to the authorities uh, as uh, an act of bringing glory to God or making God's glory uh, and salvation manifest in the world, but Peter says that scrupulous obedience to governments and councils and the police and even to frustrating regulations are a witness to the world of our freedom in Christ. That is, our freedom in Christ to obey rather than our slavery to sin in which we used to be trapped. Second, where to live well in our working relationships. Uh, Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So, Our behaviour in the workplace, whether as employers or employees, is a witness. Uh, It provides a a plausibility structure, you might say. It gives credibility to the gospel that we proclaim with our mouths. Third, where to live well in our relationships at home. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Or chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers." As Paul says in Ephesians, the way husbands and wives live ought to reflect the gospel. Husbands ought to give themselves up for their wives just as Christ gave himself up for the church. Uh, They ought to exercise costly love. And wives ought to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. They ought to model obedience and trust in Christ. That is, the marriage relationship is intended to model the gospel, to to show forth the realities of the gospel of Christ's love for the church and our obedience and submission to Christ. But one of the most significant ways in which uh, Peter calls these Christians to live uh, is as witnesses by suffering. The the theme of suffering takes up most of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. We are to suffer, Peter says, as Christ suffered. We are to suffer for doing good. We are to rejoice in sufferings. I find that a really striking thought. And I've been asking myself the question whether maybe one of the reasons our evangelism in the branch and in Australia often seems so, so ineffective, is that because of our unwillingness to suffer? But Peter is uh, making the point, the point that he's making is that our evangelism, our fulfilling of the Great Commission is lived out in the context of our ordinary lives. That's the core idea that he wants to communicate to us. It's not fulfilled mostly on Sunday for that three and a half percent of our lives. It's fulfilled mostly in the other 96 and percent. It's fulfilled in at the everyday context of our lives and in our everyday relationships. And the point of uh, Peter's uh, instruction here is not for us simply to be moral or good, but rather Peter's calling us to live lives that are radically and comprehensively shaped by the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that we believe and the gospel to which we are slaves. You see, all these activities are not just moral activities, they're not just good activities, but they're activities that are anchored in the gospel. We live them out, Peter says in 2.4, as we come to Jesus. Or in chapter 2, verse 2, as we crave pure spiritual milk, the, the milk of the gospel word. Or in chapter 2, verse 10, we live them out as people who have received mercy in Jesus. These are not just moral ideas lived out in a vacuum, a great marriage, a great relationship with our employer, but they flow out of trust in and love for God through Jesus Christ. And they say something about the gospel, whether it's our freedom in Christ to submit to the authorities, whether it's our suffering as followers of Christ, whether it's the love of Christ that he displayed for the church, whether it's our obedience and submission to Christ. The hope is that as we live out of the gospel, our lives will be different kinds of lives. And the ultimate hope is that we might have an opportunity to speak about the truth which shapes our lives. So chapter 3 verse 15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The hope is that in living these lives rooted in the gospel, living out the implications of the gospel, the hope is that we'll win an opportunity to speak words about Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done in dying for the sins for our sins and being raised to life for our justification and reconciliation with God. You see, we must live changed lives, but we must also speak. There must be be words. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? There must be words to explain the gospel. But the hope is that as we live lives saturated with the power of the gospel, grounded in the gospel, uh, that as we do that, we will win a hearing for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only should we uh, be living that way and hoping for those opportunities, we ought to be praying for them, praying that those opportunities would arise, and praying that when they come, we will be ready that God would give us words to speak the truth of the gospel into people's lives. So, being scattered throughout the world, we live out the power of the gospel in the hope of winning opportunities to speak the message of the gospel. But the Scattered Church is not only about being built up by the addition of new Christians. It's also, the purpose of the Scattered Church is also to strengthen those who are already Christians. One mistake that we can make is to think that how all this works is that when we gather, we build each other up, and then when we leave, we do evangelism. Uh, but actually, when we leave, we also ought to continue to build up the existing members of the church as well. It's quite striking in the New Testament uh, how, many in, how often instructions to the church bleed into instructions for other settings, like instructions for husbands and wives, or parents and children and masters and slaves. We've already seen that in 1 Peter. But you get it in other places too, like Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians. So in Ephesians, in the first three or four chapters of that letter, Paul gives his theology of the church. He gives this rich and wonderful theology. They are the people chosen by God, uh, reconciled by Christ, built together in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Uh, But then Paul goes on to talk about how the church is to relate to each other. On the basis of that theology, how are they to live? And yet, strikingly, instead of talking about what they do in church, in their gatherings, Paul spends the majority of his time speaking about what they do in other relationships, like husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and slaves. Why does he do that? Well, surely at one level, that's because that's where people spend so much of their time. So much of the stuff in the Bible is uh, about how to live as uh, the the church. It's not only so much of it that's about how to live as a church is not only about what we do when we gather, but about how to live in the relationships that we're in uh, every day. And that really makes a lot of sense, actually. God is saying... That how you live in those relationships, uh, marriages, parents, children, employer, employees, how you live in those relationships affects the church. If you live out the gospel in those everyday relationships, then that will help to build the church. If you fail to live out the gospel in those relationships, then that will damage the church. Uh, It's kind of obvious, but if you think about it, if you're married, one of the people that you spend the most time with in life, is your husband or your wife. Well, that's a great ministry opportunity. You don't need to work hard to find time to meet up. You're with each other all the time. And the way that you live when you're around each other can either build the other person up in Christ for the blessing of God's church, or... Conversely, your words and your actions toward them can tear them down and discourage them and make them ineffective in the Christian life. How you live in your marriage has the potential to either build up or tear down the church. And the same goes for parents and children. One of the people that your child spends the most time with is you. (laughs) You are the most important person in their life in terms of discipling them in the Christian faith. If you're not discipling them, it won't happen. You can't expect the Sunday school teachers or the youth group leaders to disciple your children because they only get maybe 30 minutes, an hour a week with them, but you get every day for 20 years or more, you get all that time uh, to disciple them. Uh, And you teach and you train them Uh, not simply by what you say, but by how you live. So if you say to them, we should live sacrificially and generously, but then if you spend all your money on yourself, what lesson will they learn? Uh, They won't learn the, the lesson of your words, they'll learn the lesson of your actions. If you say that meeting together with God's people is crucial for the life of the church and for their spiritual life, but if then you never turn up, then what lesson will they learn? If you say that God is the number one priority in life and yet everything else that comes up to replace God automatically gets first priority, gets first pick, then what will they learn about the priority of God in life? They'll learn the message that God is not really the number one priority in life. How you live uh, with your children before your children, not just what you say, but the life that you live can either build up the church or tear the church down. Now, I suddenly realised the other day that in all the time that I've been at the church, we focused as a church on raising up and training Sunday school teachers and, uh, and youth leaders and things like that. But actually, surprisingly, shockingly, We've never done anything in my time to train and equip parents to disciple their children in their own home. Nothing explicitly. We've had the week-to-week preaching and growth groups and other things which hopefully will feed into that. But we've never specifically done anything to help parents, equip parents for teaching and training and discipling their children in their own home. But how profoundly stupid is that when Parents are the ones who have the most ready access, the greatest opportunity to disciple and train their children in righteousness and holiness and godliness. And for my part in that, I apologise. And let me say I'm hoping to remedy that. I'm hoping that in term four we'll begin to remedy that uh, by having a training night on raising and discipling children where we can hear a bit about what the Bible says as well as hear from different people at different stages on that journey of raising children and learn from their biblical wisdom and godly insight. Uh, That will be in term four. But if you really want to grow uh, in raising and training and discipling your children, then let me suggest one thing which I think will help immeasurably uh, in that journey. And that is to find somebody in the church who is a bit older than you, who you think has brought up godly children in a godly way, and then ask them what they did. Ask them how they trained and discipled their children. Ask them how they disciplined them. Ask them how they showed love and modelled forgiveness. And ask them as well, this is important, ask them as well to come over and spend time with you and your kids and to observe you as a family and observe you as parents and then ask them afterwards to highlight some of the things that you're not doing very well or to highlight some of the things that you could do better. Now, that will probably be painful and difficult to hear. I know parents feel the responsibility, the obligations in parenting, they, they take that very heavily But you won't learn as a parent, you won't grow as a parent, unless you can have other people around you who you invite into your life to correct, rebuke, train, and encourage you to put off what sins might be marring your parenting, uh, to put off what misunderstandings might be affecting your parenting, uh, to put off uh, the things that perhaps are not helpful, and to put on good and godly characteristics that might help you to do better and to uh, love and train and disciple your children better than you already are. We don't need, we don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed of the ways that we sin and fail in any area of life, let alone uh, parenting. We can take those things to the cross. We can, we can welcome uh, that rebuke and encouragement without fear because we know uh, that God is teaching and training us to be a loving uh, father, a loving parent, uh, like he is to us as his children. And the same what is true of uh, parents and children and of that relationship and husbands and wives, what is true of the potential for those to build up the church or tear down the church what is true of those relationships is true of any relationship that we have with another Christian. Any relationship, whatever context it might have, presents an opportunity for you to minister to people, for you to build them up, for you to serve them, for you to grow them in a holy faith, or alternatively, for you to fail to do that and for you to damage and, uh, and uh, destroy the church. And so the best question that we can all ask is not so much, what church ministry ought I to be involved in? That might be a good question for you to ask if you're not involved in anything. But the most important question for us to ask is for the 96.5% of the time that we're not gathered in church and to ask the question, what am I already involved in? Where has God placed me in life? And how can I turn those places, those opportunities, into gospel ministry? Where has God put me for 96.5% of my life? And how can I serve God in gospel ministry in those places? In doing that, in asking that question, in in, uh, serving and loving those that we come into contact with, in sharing the gospel, in training them for godliness uh, and holiness, in the Christian life, we fulfill the task of the church in a whole lot of different places, not just on Innocent Street in Kingsmeadows, but all through Launceston, through Tasmania, and through the world. We love God. We love the church. We love our neighbor. We make disciples and teach them to obey Christ, not just on Sunday for an hour, but in all our lives, wherever God has put us. So the way that we live as Christians scattered in the world builds the church both by bringing in new disciples and also by training existing disciples who are already in the church, training them to be more mature in Christ. But if one of the uh, key ways that the church operates is by scattering and loving God, and our neighbour, wherever God puts us, another crucial aspect of the scattered ministry of the church is appointing and sending evangelists. As you read through the New Testament, you can't avoid the fact that the Church not only calls on its people to scatter and to take the Gospel with them and to live out the implications of the Gospel, but the Church also uh, appoints and sends specially chosen people for the specific work of Gospel ministry. For example, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are set aside for mission work by the leadership of the church, and others too are sent out through the rest of the book of Acts. As you read through Acts, you find people continually being sent out for gospel ministry by the church. And as you read through Paul's letters, you find him constantly urging the churches to support people in evangelistic mission uh, to which those people have been appointed. And not only that, not only do we read stories of that in Acts and the rest of the New Testament, but Jesus commands us to pray to that end. He says in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We need to be praying that God would raise up workers for the harvest, workers who can be set apart by the church uh, and sent out. It's not enough simply for us to share the gospel ourselves. We need to be doing that. Of course we do. But we also need to be raising up and sending people into gospel ministry. It's not a, we don't. We ought not to make a choice between one or the other, us going or sending people out. We need to do both. Both are at the heart of the faithful New Testament church. One of the things about our church community, which I think is absolutely wonderful, is that as a church, we've been able to do that. We've been able to send people into gospel ministry. Uh, and We've been able to send quite a number of people. We've sent the pools to South Sudan. We've appointed Ben uh, previously as an adopter block evangelist. We've sent Q&A, Kate, Peter and Anne, Susan, and sent various others on short trips as well. We've also trained and sent people into pastoral ministry. We've helped to train Julian. Some of you might remember Julian, who was an apprentice here. He's now ministering at a church in Olverston. We've helped to train and support Ollie, who's now studying at SMBC and looking to go into some form of full-time gospel ministry. We've been training and equipping Jacob as well. And we ought to be incredibly thankful that we can partner in the gospel like that. And yet, as thankful as we can be, Jesus has commanded us to be praying for more gospel workers. I was inspired and challenged earlier in this year by my friend and mentor in ministry who told me that he has been praying for many years now that God would raise up 50 gospel workers from the church where he was. God has actually answered that prayer. Uh, The number now is well over 100 people who have been raised up from his church. But since that time, I have been praying. I've been praying that God would raise up a hundred gospel workers from the branch. And wouldn't that be great if that was not just my prayer, but that was a prayer that we could pray together, that the Lord of the harvest would raise up more workers that we can send out into the harvest field. We need to do that. People need to hear the gospel. Christ ought to be honoured in the world. And so we ought to pray that God would enable us to raise up gospel workers, that he would raise up gospel workers that we can train and send and support to take the message of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ and reconciliation with God that they can take that good news to those who've never heard it so in God's wisdom the church scatters it scatters to take the message of the gospel into the world and we've seen as well that uh, The church not only takes the gospel with it as it scatters, but it purposefully and specifically sends people out for specific evangelistic ministry and gospel work. The last thing that it would be good to think about before we finish is how the two elements of gathering and scattering fit together. For instance, if in scattering we get to take the gospel to the world and we get to uh, dis- train and disciple fellow Christians. If we can do that when we're scattered, why not always be scattered? Uh, why don't we put all our efforts into that and not worry about gathering? What's the point of gathering? Well, we saw what the point of gathering was last week. Uh, it's so that we can be built together into God's holy temple. It's an uh, identity uh, that we take with us into that those places where God scatters us. The point of gathering is to equip us, equip us for works of service. The goal of gathering is to uh, be trained, to be trained in love and to be trained in the knowledge of the gospel and the knowledge of God. It's to be renewed by hearing God's word. It's to be encouraged amid the discouragements of our scattered ministry. It's to be brought to maturity together in the faith is to be brought to repentance for the sins that mar our lives and that mar the ministry which God has given to us. Uh, It's to be refocused on the grace and the glory and the greatness of God. It's to be retrained to honour God. It's to pray for each other in our ministries and in our pursuit of Christ and in our work in the world. The point of gathering is so that when we scatter, when we go out into the world, when we go about the tasks that God has given to us, we might be wise for salvation through the scriptures and thoroughly equipped for every good work by the Bible. The goal of gathering is so that when we scatter, we can take the gospel, the true gospel, the living gospel out with us into the places where God has put us. What does the church do? The church loves God. The church loves the church, God's people. The church loves our neighbor. The church makes disciples. It does that by gathering to be built up in a holy faith to be strengthened to praise God and to pray. And it does that by scattering and taking with it the love of Christ and the message of the gospel into the world and into the places where God has put us. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the church, the wonderful church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our head uh, and through whom uh, we are being built into a building which is your holy temple filled by your spirit uh, joined together being built together uh, into a place where you dwell Uh, and Lord we thank you for that thank you that we can gather uh, and that we can be built up in the gospel Lord as we saw last week we can't all gather together in church at the moment and we grieve that and Uh, and are saddened by that, Lord, we pray that you would hasten the day when we could do that again so that we could be built up, so that we could be built together to the praise and glory of your name. And Lord, we pray that uh, so that when we go about our lives, when we go to the places where you've put us, when we go to our families and our workplaces, our community groups, uh, when we go to all the different places that we go Uh, as families and as individuals and as friends, Lord, when we go there, we can take the gospel with us. Lord, equip us to be people for whom the praise of you flows out of our mouths day in, day out, hour by hour, minute by minute. Lord, we pray that we would be people who live as aliens and strangers uh, in this world, that we would live such godly lives among those who don't know you, that they would glorify you on the day that you visit us when the Lord Jesus returns. Lord, we pray that we would live for you in the relationships in which you've placed us, in our workplaces, in our homes, uh, wherever it is. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in those relationships uh, and to train and equip our fellow Christians in those relationships to live for you and to be mature in Christ. Lord, we pray also that you would enable us to suffer for the gospel. Lord, how important it is It's on every page of the New Testament that we suffer for the gospel. And Lord, we want to confess that so often we don't. Lord, we idolise comfort. We do all that we can to avoid suffering and hardship. Lord, we prioritise that in our lives uh, to the cost of our godliness, our holiness, our growth uh, in the faith. Lord, we, we avoid suffering. Uh, to the detriment of our evangelistic mission work. Lord, we prioritise comfort uh, and uh, idolise that and so denigrate uh, and uh, turn aside from you. Lord, forgive us for that uh, and help us to grow. Help us to suffer for the gospel for Jesus' sake. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to raise up people among us, that you would raise up 100 gospel workers from the branch to be sent out into the harvest field. Lord, there are so many countries, so many places, so many people who've not had a chance to hear the gospel even once. Lord, that breaks our heart. Lord, please do something about that by raising up people who are willing to suffer, willing to give everything up, to go into the mission field, to make the Lord Jesus Christ known. Lord, we pray that as a church being gathered and scattered, uh, we would be able to fulfil your great commandments, to love you, to love each other, to love our neighbour, and to make disciples of all nations. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.